Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for our SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. First up, what's the difference between the Global North and the Global South in international ed terms? Second, does the United States have a value gap with international students? And third, are 40% of international students not returning to Australia and going elsewhere? We'll answer these three questions and more today on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. As we do each week, we take our news stories that we present on Monday in our newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and we take a look at those uh, common themes we see developing in the news stories, and we present the three questions we cover here on Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on our Facebook Live uh, for SMIE Consulting. And each week we take, the, take these news stories and we uh, encourage you to subscribe to the newsletter. I'm putting the link to the most recent edition of the newsletter as as well as the page on our SMIE Consulting website where you can subscribe officially to the newsletter and get these news stories in your inbox each Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. So let's dive right into our first question of the day. And this is uh, one of the big thinking uh, questions that uh, we ha have every once in a while on, on, the, on, the, news, uh, on the news here uh, for the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. And this one is uh, uh, university comes out of a University World News article uh, entitled Higher Education Report Charts the Rise of the Global South. Uh, this is put together by my good friend and colleague Alex Usher from Higher Education Strategic Strategy Associates out of Toronto. Uh, they do some amazing work uh, on the Canadian higher ed, but also larger international ed issues. And this report is a clear uh, example of that. Uh, and for those not familiar, uh, the terms that are talked about in the question here, Global North and Global South, uh, referring to kind of the largely westernized uh, countries of, uh, of the world, industrialized countries of the world, and the Global South, uh, kind of the uh, less well-developed countries, but up-and-comers, uh, and obviously South also has some uh, ge geog geographical references to southern hemisphere, but also southern uh, south of the maybe uh, um, GDP, some GDP lines. Uh, but so clearly, there's a lot of a lot of institutions and countries that are in the global south that are uh, huge players economically, but uh, on the world stage, but educationally haven't been necessarily. So uh, Alex and his group have taken a look at trying to pr provide some perspective on the growth of education, higher education in particular, in the Global North versus the Global South, and looking at some comparative data on enrollments and funding and some really great uh, data points in here that uh, I think is worth worth diving into a little bit more uh, as we explore what the, what really the differences are other than geographic, uh, geographic between the North, Global North and South. So we're talking about uh, just some basic numbers. We'll talk about uh, the number of institutions that were, uh, are involved here in the North and the South. We'll talk about funding, and we'll talk about what that funding typically goes to when there are increases and what that then creates uh, in terms of a gap between the global North and South. So great report, and there's going to be a webinar about this topic uh, on the 31st, so a week from tomorrow. I uh, certainly encourage you all. It's a University World News uh, webinar, uh, and that uh, that if you get the link to this article, you'll be able to get that uh, webinar information coming up. So uh, first first off, the number of institutions. Uh, while uh, 
And one of the first data points that uh, Alex and his team points out is the number of higher education institutions in the global north in uh, talking U.S., Canada, Australia, U.K., New Zealand, uh, uh, and, and uh, mostly uh, in Europe as well. Uh, there's a, there, there are approximately 20,000 uh, higher education institutions, barely changed in a period between 2006 and 2018. Uh, the Global South, however, you saw the, their number double. Uh, they were already double uh, the Global North in 20, 2006. They moved from 40,000 to nearly 70,000 uh, in 2018. So uh, they've, uh, they've re you've seen incredible growth in the number of institutions in uh, higher education institutions in the Global South compared to the Global North, which has remained fairly flat. Uh, so we're looking at a global institutional total of 90,000 uh, institutions of higher education around the world. Uh, Alex and his team do point out that most of that growth in the global south is from India, uh, where as anyone who's uh, done any recruitment in India or gotten to understand the Indian subcontinent uh, realizes that uh, uh, public co uh, that colleges have exploded over the last uh, 10, 15 years, uh, where there may be a kind of a parent university or a parent, yeah, parent university, and then maybe hundreds of uh, colleges underneath them that are part of that umbrella of that institution in one way or another. Uh, but what that has also meant is that not nearly 90,000 institutions, you now see through those institutions, world student numbers overall have passed 200 million uh, students are now enrolled in higher education. For some perspective, uh, in the United States, we've been at about 18 to 20 million in the, over the last decade or so. Uh, we're getting, coming toward that demographic cliff, so we'll see what the numbers will do, but uh, we've been 18, 19 million. So we're less, the U.S. is less than a tenth right now of the world uh, higher education population. Uh, so 200 million worldwide currently enrolled. Uh, the number of uh, students enrolled in uh, Global North institutions in those 20,000 or so uh, peaked in 2011, according to this report, and have been going down uh, since uh, to currently at about 58.3 million. So uh, of the 200 million are enrolled in the Global North institutions. However, in the Global South, this is, this is where the, the numbers are just mind-boggling. Uh, their numbers have almost doubled in that same period between 2006 and 2018. Uh, they've gone from 78 million in 2006 to 150 million in 2018, so nearly double in that time period. So that uh, what, is, what is apparent through these numbers that we're seeing is uh, part of that growth is uh, in the global south has been to accommodate a growing college age population uh, and providing uh, the space uh, spaces for higher education for students in those countries that uh, that are clamoring for it. Uh, the challenge has been not every uh, that the, the where and Alex's point in this article means uh, that though this funding ha though the um, numbers have increased. The funding models, when they have increased in the global north versus the global south, operate on very different uh, different um, rationales. In terms of what they they look at, is uh, the funding in that period between 2005, 6, and 2018 again, is that uh, as the article points out, when global north governments hike funding 
It's to for it's for a stable body of students, and added money goes to quality, equity, and research, according to the article and the report. And in the global south, the money mostly goes to increased capacity and access. So this has obviously been the case in China. We saw a huge expansion in the mid two thousands to grow the number of institutions that. Uh, uh, and the capacity at those institutions for enrollment, enrolling uh, students from their country, and in China's case, more students from overseas as well. But uh, uh, clearly the focus was on providing for the needs of their own populations who were clamoring for higher education opportunities. And uh, you, those countries, India, China in particular, were seeing um, students uh, leaving uh, the country because they couldn't get, the top students were leaving the country because they couldn't get into their top choice institutions because there weren't enough spaces. Uh, you see that with top institutions in China, but you also see that in India, and that's been uh, been the case for 20 years uh, or longer, where you've seen uh, students who were trying to get into uh, top institutions in India, have uh, I, the IITs of the world, and didn't get places, started looking elsewhere for their higher education. Most of that to the U.S. didn't happen until graduate school up until the last 10 years or so when the undergraduate numbers started to rise. But you're certainly seeing, have seen that in China. Um, maybe t uh, that those numbers have certainly took a dip the last two or three years, but maybe on on the way back up in the coming uh, coming two to three years itself. So great research coming out of uh, Alex and his team at HESA. Uh, very uh, very uh, enlightening. And again, part of the what we always talk about here on the Roundup uh, as part of our six P's of strategic international enrollment management is having that perspective on the world. What's going on in the rest of the world in terms of higher education? What, what are the push-pull factors in different countries why students are considering overseas study options? Options. So we take take all of this information into into account when we uh, present these stories and try to provide uh, an insight that you probably wouldn't have gotten if you're just head down and doing your job and going to those fairs and uh, trying to enroll students each year. Uh, but this gives you some context. It's not going to help you increase your yield 10% every year, but it's certainly going to give you some perspective as you're talking to students, talking to parents, and understanding why you're recruiting in certain areas, what the motivations are going to be for students in those markets that might be looking to go overseas. So thanks to Alex and the team at HESA, and uh, we'll certainly be talking more, I think, about this global north versus global south dichotomy. So uh, let's move on to our second question of the day. And that is the uh, one that I think is, uh, it's, a, it's a survey that came out, so the results of the survey came out last week, uh, got some attention in the Pi, uh, Pi News. Um, I'm going, uh, the article I'm presenting today is uh, right off the, uh, the, the news, re news release for this report, uh, this survey, I should say. Uh, this is uh, the question, does the United States have a value gap with international students? So what are we talking about when we say value gap? Uh, value gap is really, uh, in this case, it's students value coming to the United States uh, for the quality of education, but uh, in, the, in, the, in terms of the results of this survey, but perhaps they don't see the immediate ROI uh, in terms of payoff for uh, the return on their parents' investment for the degree that they've earned uh, immediately. So uh, they're more skeptical about that, I should say. Uh, the, doc, uh, the commission uh, or the, uh, the survey were, was commissioned by a company called Interstride, not one I'm particularly familiar with. Uh, they also, uh, as part of that uh, uh, 
research project. Uh, they con uh, cons contracted with Anna Asaki Smith of Education Rethink uh, to survey more than a thousand students from over a hundred countries. That was the goal of uh, the survey. And her results uh, were published in a paper, Is Studying in the USA, in the US Worth It? And the, her, sur her survey, she says, revealed a distinct dynamic. And I'll quote her here from the press release. We have international students who value the U.S. study abroad experience drawn to the country by the stellar reputation of U.S. colleges and universities, she, she, she said. But what we offer in terms of tangible value to students through the lens of career outcomes is not as clear to these students. And a couple of the numbers that come out of this that uh, are particularly illuminating, I think. 84% of respondents said they would recommend studying in the U.S. to friends and peers back home. This is good news for U.S. institutions, uh, given the word of mouth. Marketing is a powerful recruitment tool uh, for international students. But quote here again, yet only 49% of respondents said that the value of a U.S. education from a career perspective justifies the cost. Now that's 49%. We'll take a look at that a little bit more in depth. What I really like about uh, this report is that uh, the, her, her, her comment uh, uh, out of the report is that, uh, and what, she's t what she says higher education folks in the U.S. need to get their heads around, is must, they must close the perceived value gap. And she identified some recommendations uh, to do that. And uh, some of these are ones we talk about, and uh, certainly I've written about these for, uh, for IDB Connect in terms of uh, marketing out to uh, prospective students and the things that they need to hear. Uh, and this is a lot of the results of this, of this survey certainly back up a lot of what we've been hearing from other surveys or, or global surveys around the world, not just the U.S. ones, about the importance of outcomes, the importance of what is your degree going to lead me to when I'm done. And that's something that I think uh, is, is critical in terms of connecting the dots on your campus. And this is something I struggle with ev almost every institution that I've ever done, done some work with on consulting uh, on international education strategies is how well are you articulating your value that your career services provides to students, and in particular to international students, how well you're articulating that value to your prospective students. And that's, there are often disconnects, uh, unconnected dots uh, that uh, occur all over campuses that where uh, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing in terms of uh, the, the connection with international students. So that's why I always focus my, my attention when I start with a new campus is getting a, getting a sense of the landscape is what, where are, where are the disconnects happening uh, for international students, not just at the front end of the recruitment journey, but throughout their time on campus to the time that they become successful alumni. And that's ultimately what your campus is dri driving all students to be, is successful alumni. And if the, the if certainly universities are set up to do that for domestic students, and that's just the nature of the beast. Uh, there are career services offices. I have uh, have the have the job interview skill, uh, skills uh, sessions. They have resume building activities. They have fairs that they do for internships and jobs, uh, where they're bringing employers to campus, and they do a lot of a lot of great things for the majority of students. But when there are sets of international students that um, maybe don't have the same opportunities for internships and employment opportunities as, 
from from your college because the career services aren't really attuned to those differences. Uh, that those are disconnects that are happening. They oftentimes don't have the great data that they should have uh, that de demonstrates those outcomes. They may have some, Every uh, most campuses will have students will be, X percent of students who are employed within six months of graduation for those that are looking for jobs. Some go on to grad school, some uh, some do, uh, take, do begin volunteering or take a gap year before they hit the work world, whatever it might be. But the data often isn't there to back it up. And what also is missing oftentimes are those success stories, particularly amongst young alumni. Uh, what have, have, the, has, have your degrees done over the last five to 10 years for young graduates from overseas that are, and that are now successful in their fields, whatever that might be. Tracking is always an issue. Uh, there are some, some social media tools, Handshake and others, that help you stay connected with alumni uh, through uh, some data mining that goes on, activities that go on, if you're not automatically tracking it yourself. But having that access to that data uh, and having more specific outreach by career centers to international students, and that's one of the recommendations that uh, is made through the survey, uh, they, that there needs to, frankly, build upon the, the positive attitudes they have, these international students have by coming to the United States, by provi providing both emotional and professional support. That's the second recommendation. And certainly during the pandemic, that's been come more clear than ever, is the mental health challenges that everybody's had, not just international students, but they can be particularly acute amongst international students when it come, if they're coming from cultures where they never really talk about mental health. Uh, we barely talk about it here in the United States. It's become more, more accepted to do so recently. And perhaps domestic students, certainly I've seen, read countless essays this past year from incoming applicants that talk about the, the toll the pandemic has had on their mental health. And at least they're, they're talking about it. But inter international students, if they're not from a culture that values openness about, and talking about uh, challenges that we have and experience in mental health, that can be a real struggle. So making sure that they're aware of the support that is available on campus to answer those kinds of questions, I think, is very valuable. And secondly, uh, or the third recommendation is to develop closer relationships with U.S. employers that could potentially hire international graduates. And I love this one because this is something I've uh, implemented on a couple of campuses recently that I've worked with, and that's doing two things. Uh, every campus has job fairs or internship fairs where employers come to campus and uh, interview students. They're at a, in a, at a kind of college fair setting and students can go around and visit with different employers. What I've had, had one of my, one of my uh, institutions do is career services when they have employers signing up. They're asking the question, will you hire international students who have legal permission to work for uh, up to a, for between one and three years as, um, at, at your company? Or will you hire them that way? So that if they answer no to that question, uh, then the, the, when the students get the list of uh, com companies that are attending an event, the, the, only those that are ast have an asterisk by them will be ones that international students, when they get the list, will know, okay, these are the ones that I should focus my time and energy on. Rather than spend in a room of 100 companies, only 25 uh, will, uh, for example, only 25 will hire international students for OPT, that that's, that's 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 a service your career office can provide to international students to help them focus their time and energy uh, effectively and not waste it. And 
How many how how many times have you you had international students? If you've been in touch with them, if you work with them as an advisor, when they come back after getting excited about a fair and then coming back, well, no one wants to hire international students. How depressing is that? But if they can go in focused with the ability of knowing, hey, there are companies here. These are the ones that say they can hire. I have I have these set of skills. They're looking for students, uh, potential applicants with the same set of skills. Then I'm going to focus my time on those those companies. So by developing closer relationships with those employers, by doing more workshops for them in terms of what's involved to hire them in terms of paperwork, there's nothing really that they need to do other than the STEM OPT folks, the, their supervisors need to be able to uh, intelligently talk about how their extension time is going to be related to, to their, that what they're doing is their STEM program, an extension of their STEM education. Uh, but having having those employers uh, be more engaged in, particularly those that do work with international students, to have those um, have them ready uh, and willing to put that seed in their mind. While maybe we were missing out on students in case they don't hire currently international students, and I have uh, a major company in my hometown here that's a. Uh, uh, one of the largest petroleum companies in, in the country, they do not hire international students unless they already have permanent residency. Uh, and that is just eliminating some of the best STEM talent in their field because they won't hire a st a st an international student who they would have to take on OPT and then f uh, file and pay, uh, pay H-1B fees. They're not willing to do that because um, they see it as too risky. And that's, that's something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, frankly, when you think about it. Uh, when the investment that they make in an international student can have lasting benefits far beyond uh, just the time that they're, uh, that first initial three years or one year that you have them on an OPT contract. So de developing those relationships with companies, even those that are just posting jobs on your site uh, that they have available, Similarly, before you can post a job, uh, one of the questions you answer is, will you hire an international students on F-1 visas for OPT? And so they, they will have that knowledge so that international students that are going to this uh, an RSS feed for jobs on campus will now see, hey, they, they only hire international, they, they're willing to hire international students, so I'm going to focus on them. So that's uh, just some great uh, recommendations coming out of that survey, and I certainly wholeheartedly agree that these are things that U.S. colleges need to be including in how they talk about their institutions, but also on the back end, having the data and the connections that make sense and, and provide this level of service that international students need to make sure that when they leave your campus, they're, they're, they have the skill set, they have the opportunities, and they can be directed to those that make the most sense for them. So that's a uh, great, uh, great uh, survey results and certainly some, uh, some recommendations there that make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, and our final question of the day. This is going abroad. We're going down under here for this one. And it is, are 40% of international students not returning to Australia going elsewhere? So this, uh, as you may know, uh, Australia has recently reopened their doors to international students that are fully vaccinated uh, to try and rebuild uh, their international uh, reputation. Uh, certainly, Australia uh, had, before the pandemic, had incredible uh, uh, student flows coming from China, coming from India, Nepal, Vietnam, other countries in South and East Asia that were really being attracted to Australian universities and the work opportunities that they would have. Pandemic hit, and as you know, outside of New Zealand and 
Japan and China, Australia shut down um, almost almost completely. And for international students who weren't already in the country in March of 2020, uh, they were left out. They weren't able to get back in until just in the last few months. Uh, and so only slowly through some pilot projects, uh, programs in 2021, and now the doors are, are open to, to those that are fully vaccinated. So the initial returns have certainly been positive. Uh, there's been some news stories we've been seeing that are suggesting that uh, uh, some areas of the country are super satisfied or super happy with their results uh, in terms of uh, student returns. Uh, but some of the data is perhaps a little, a little, uh, a little worrying uh, in the long term for Australia. Uh, and this is something uh, that Australian universities certainly have been counting on this reopening to reinvigorate uh, their uh, student populations. And this is important because when you think about Australian universities, they were already at 25 to 30 percent international to begin with. Uh, so th when you have a up to almost 30% of your population, student population, shut out. For those that were, what what percentage of that that weren't already on, weren't in the country when uh, the academic year began, uh, you now have uh, the hope that these students have been abroad for two better part of two years uh, are now able to come back in the country because they're fully vaccinated. Some are coming in the final semester or final term to uh, to graduate, be able to graduate soon and then uh, begin their post-study work. And that's one of the things that all the countries that really shut down have allowed students to, who were continuing to pursue their degrees online to maintain their, their, their clock, if you will, towards uh, being able to keep their post-study work dreams alive. So uh, that um, one company that's uh, looked, looked, looked into this, uh, there's some new research commissioned uh, by online study support service called Studiosity out of Australia and conducted by an inter independent research agency called the Student Edge has indicated that only half a little over half, 58% of international students enrolled at Australian universities plan on returning to campus this year. Wow. So six, less than 60% of international students that have been enrolled at Australian universities virtually were planning to return to campus this year. So roughly 40%, 41% are going to be studying elsewhere. And that is... Uh, potentially significant, oh my goodness, what is going on in the wide world? Well, how, is, how are 40%? And the way this is worded, it's not quite clear because it does say 58% uh, of international students enrolled at Australian universities plan on returning to campus this year. Of the students not returning to campus in Australia, so that would be the, the 42%, uh, two in five will be studying elsewhere. So that means the other 1% are going to finish their degrees online, apparently. So this research also indicates that uh, those that were studying abroad, uh, remote, online basically, 8 and 10 international students felt lonely or, or I should say, I should say this is the... Um, during the, during the time of those students that, were, that stayed in the country, stayed in Australia, eight in 10 international stu students felt lonely or homesick. And that made up, made up of 50% who felt isolated from friends and family back home, makes sense. And 28% who found it difficult to make new friends. But in positive news, and again from the article, uh, for those students, there are a few key changes that are simple to implement and could help 
others feel less alone. More networking events for international students, 42% said that they would uh, welcome those. Additional peer support programs, 33% said that they would welcome those. And a buddy system to help them transition into university life in Australia, For that's for those students that are coming back in. So this uh, international student well-being, I think even before the pandemic was already kind of ratcheting up on the issues, priority issues level for a lot of institutions around the world, just in terms of the increased stress and strain of uh, travel and study abroad and expectations and all that. Uh, and this gets back to what we're talking about with um, uh, in the U.S. about the uh, focus on uh, mental health issues that uh, we've seen uh, as a result of the pandemic, a lot of more students impacted. And certainly these survey results suggested those that stayed in country certainly felt uh, lonely or homesick, and that often felt uh, led to f periods of isolation, long isolation and disconnectedness, and uh, and then that, that starts to play on your mind after a while. Not anybody, not just international students. Uh, so it's it's seeing that a lot of those issues really come to the fore, and I think that's refreshing. That institutions, you know, colleges, uh, governments are now starting to see that there's some real value in uh, developing the levels of services that these students need to help manage the, the, those transitions better, uh, particularly those who are coming back. So really, uh, really interesting data point, and I, I'm, I'm surprised they don't go into it more here with 40% of Australian international students that were outside the country during the pandemic have decided not to enroll and are going to study elsewhere. Uh, that's significant, and I, I, I will wait to see uh, wait to see what the the actual numbers are. But that student survey results do seem to lay some worrying uh, worrying uh, troubles at the doors of uh, Australian institutions. So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that one. But that's all we have for you this week on the midweek roundup. I do appreciate you being a part of the conversation as always, and we look forward to continuing our chats with you at upcoming conferences. Uh, as we get into uh, conference season here more in depth in the next three to four months. So until next time, we wish you all the very best. Cheers.